Our second Bible reading is a continuation of chapter 8. We'll be picking it up at verse 48, and you'll find that on page 1,121 of the Pew Bibles, or follow along with me on the screen behind me. John chapter 8, starting at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is God's word. Thank you, Wendy and Margaret, for praying for us and leading us in prayer. The passage we're looking at today is, is just like every week, very important. It's the word of God and it's focused on truth and freedom, and it has relevance, not just back then for them who heard, uh, first heard it, but for us today, and remains relevant in every age. And so, as we come to this, uh, let's once again pray to God for his help, that we might understand the truth he wants us to understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every word that comes from your mouth is true, and it's needed by us to live, to have freedom. We pray that you might help us to understand this word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, is there truth? Or what's the truth? And how do we find it? It's a big word, isn't it? Truth. What do we mean by it? How do you find it? The human quest for truth. I mean, that's the aim of good journalism. Good journalists would be unbiased, objective, do their research and reporting in an unbiased way, which I feel perhaps lately has been somewhat lacking in our ABC, but the search for truth. Or it's the aim of good historians to record, to research the truth accurately. What did happen? Even in the CIA, you know, the spy agency in the US, the place of secret services, of agents of mysteries and spies they also claim to be searching for the truth now etched 
at their head office in Langley, we find a Bible verse in a government building. And we find a verse that we read off in this passage. And so it might be hard to see there, but etched in marble on their wall in the foyer of the head office are those words from John chapter 8, verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, I discovered that this was in fact true by watching movies like Born Identity and all that, and I thought that's going to make a good sermon illustration one day, so here it is. And that's, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> but what is truth? And where do you find truth? How do you get to truth? You see, even that question presumes that there is truth to be found. But the reality is that in our world today, it's not how everyone thinks. When I grew up as a younger boy growing to primary school, high school, it, it was somewhat simpler. It was either true or not true. But today in our post-modern society, or even post-postmodern society, every, everything becomes a matter of perspective and opinion. And so people speak of truth as though it's all relative. You know, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. It's just a matter of perspective. That's how our society thinks about truth. It just doesn't matter. There's many truths. You have yours. I have mine. But if you think about it, it just doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. Is it true or not true? I mean, if I sincerely think in my heart of hearts that I'm six foot five and I believe it, is that true or not? You might say, well, you're not really that tall. And I say, well, sincerely, I believe I am. Is it true or not? Is it just a matter of perspective? get a tape measure, you measure me, and you find out that I'm actually quite short. You see, sincerity does not equate to truth. But it's how our world thinks today. Truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true. It's, it just doesn't make sense. But then when it comes to matters of God, matters of life and death, matters of heaven and hell, matters of judgment, it's no longer a matter of opinion. What's true for you, what's true for me, it doesn't work that way. This past week we had a, an ESL Easter service and many of these ESL students, they come from a different background from us. They've, they've migrated to our country and many of them believe different things. Many of them do believe in the sense of reincarnation. You come back as an animal or some other being or another human depending on how you lived in this life. We as Christians, we believe there is judgment day and there is resurrection, there is heaven and hell. It can't be just a matter of perspective. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. It just doesn't work. If the resurrection is true, then there's no reincarnation. If reincarnation is true, then there's no re resurrection. And so when it comes to matters of life and death, the matters of God, it's not a matter of opinion. Is there a God or not? Is there judgment day or not? Is there a heaven and hell or not? And so when someone says, or anyone says, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, it's really just a sophisticated way of saying, I don't believe in truth at all. At least not objective, absolute, ultimate truth. But you see, there is such a truth. And that's what Jesus speaks of in our passage. So let's have a look. 
Jesus speaks here about the truth that sets free. So keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking through John chapter 8 from verse 31 onwards. Jesus speaks of a particular truth that sets free. Verses 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You see, even that bit, the CIA conveniently left out. The truth is about following Jesus. And then verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in that statement from Jesus, what does it already imply? Well, it implies that if you want the truth, it is with sticking with Jesus, with holding on to his teachings, with believing in him. But it also implies if you don't, you won't be free. Now, it's worth understanding a bit of the cultural context, the period at that time in which Jesus said this. Remember, this follows on from last week. They were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that feast was a great pilgrimage where all the Jewish people, if they were at the Mediterranean, they would have to go to Jerusalem to worship God, to celebrate, to celebrate what God has done for them in the past. And they're celebrating, really, God's deliverance of them, that they are, in fact, free people. They are no longer slaves in Egypt. That was what they came to celebrate. But then Jesus comes along and says to these people who are celebrate a day of freedom, Jesus says to them, you're not free. You're not free at all unless you follow me. Now you can imagine they would have taken offence at that. What do you mean, Jesus, we're not free? Of course we're free. And so verse 33, they, they said, we are Abraham's descendant. That is, we have the right ancestry. We've got the right DNA. We're in the right family. We are free. And then they go on to say, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And so what did Jesus mean? You shall be set free. Well, what Jesus was getting at here was at the heart of every human being. Not the freedom that they enjoyed as Jews walking the streets of Jerusalem. Not the freedom that we enjoy today as Australians. We speak of freedom and it's a great land of freedom. We sing it in our anthem. You know what our anthem is? Well, I had to sing this as a primary school kid going to school every, every Monday morning at assembly. Our anthem is not Waltzing Matilda, it's Advance Australia Fair. And the first line we sing, Australians, all let us rejoice, for we are young and free. Now we speak of freedom, we enjoy freedom, we get to work and study and make a living. But what Jesus was getting at here lies at the heart of every human being. And that is not that type of freedom. Jesus is saying here that everyone is a slave to sin. Now that is a hard word. It is a blunt statement. It's almost offensive. Everyone is a slave to sin. That is, everyone is imprisoned in their own hearts by the lure, the seduction, the lies of sin, and you will do it. So look at verse 34. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Now, when you hear that, it, it, it confronts you. What do you do? Is that true or not? Is it a matter of perspective or, or is it just true? Do I sincerely believe that I'm not, so it's not true? Is it true or not? Well, if any one of us here thinks that that is not true, a simple test, a simple one, very simple one. Let's see how long you will last without sinning. A simple test, let's just try to make it to the end of today without sinning. Do you think that's at all possible? So have a blank sheet of paper. Any sin you do today, write it down. If it's a blank sheet by the end of the day, tell me tomorrow and I'll shout you a coffee. You say, would you be able to make it to the end of today without sinning? Not just in what we do, but how we think and even how we feel. You see, God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Our hearts are not hidden from him. So every little sense of self-love, every little sense of self-interest, every sense of pride, of greed, laziness, hatred, bitterness, vengeance, addiction, any lapse in not giving God the honour and glory he deserves, any thought, any action where Christ is not number one, if you can live that way till the end of today, then tell me and I'll shout you a coffee, but I, I would suggest that you will not be able to. No one's able to control themselves. Be perfect, even for one day. And that's why we say statements like, well, no one's perfect, it's okay. No one is perfect. Well, that's exactly the point. And so Jesus says, you're a slave to sin. We all are a slave to sin. You see, Jesus is here at this festival standing up to say to all these religious people, you are not free because you're enslaved in your heart of hearts to what is wrong and evil. You see, Jesus was making a damning indictment on human nature and he's not exaggerating. We feel like, Jesus, you're, you're, you're over the top here, but he's not exaggerating. You see, when you consider our history just in the last century, the massacres, the horrors of Auschwitz, the killing fields of Cambodia, the millions who died under Mao and Stalin, the genocides, the genocide in Rwanda, that happened in the last century. And then every day you add to it violence and rape and abuse and torture and abortion and mur murder in every corner of the globe. And that's why Jesus says, you've got a problem. You are a slave to sin. Now you can just imagine them hearing this. These are the religious elite in Jerusalem for a festival thinking that they are free. But Jesus says, you're not free. You're a slave to sin. And so true freedom then is to be free from that hold, that chain, that bond, that curse of sin. The Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, which means it will kill you. It's not okay to have sin because it will kill you. It is self-destructive. And so true freedom is not the way we often think about freedom. We like to think that if I'm free, it means that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. But that's not freedom. If we do whatever we want, what mess do we get ourselves into? 
we get ourselves into the mess we've seen in the last century or every single day on the news. Instead, freedom is not to do anything we want, but it is to have the right and the ability to do what we ought as God has made us. Freedom is to be freed from the, from the chains of sin so that I can be freed for God. Freedom is to be freed from sin so that I can be freed for God. And that's the difference between the slave and the son that Jesus speaks of here. He explains himself. You see, Jesus describes how in the ancient world, if you were a slave, then you had no right in the family at all. You have no standing, you have no rights, no inheritance, you did not belong to the family, you're a slave. You did what the master told you to do, and you had to do it. But the son, you see, the son belonged to the family forever. He has a father, and he'll own everything in the family one day. And so Jesus is here saying, it is the unique son of God who can set slaves free, free them from the bondage to sin, and bring them into family with God. And so that's what we see, verses 35-36. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son, the unique son, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And that's exactly the gospel story we've been hearing every single week in the Gospel of John. That's what Jesus did. He came to set us free, to set sinners free. He left the glory of heaven. Why come down to this dump? He enjoyed the glory of heaven in all eternity, but yet he left that, came to earth to live amongst sinners. He gave his life bled and died to pay the debt for sinners so that the chains of sin and death and evil can be broken so that he can bring sinners into the family of God to give us a place in the family where God becomes our father. You see, that's true freedom. The true freedom we all long for and desire, and that's what Jesus offers. Freedom from sin and its curse and bondage to the love of an extraordinary father, a love that can never be denied to his children. And that is true for who? For those who hold on to the teachings of Jesus, for those who are disciples of Jesus. God Almighty, just imagine that. God Almighty, the one and only, the one outside time and space, the one who made everything, the one who is perfect and so good and pure, I can call him father. I can be his son or daughter. That is true freedom. And so how did they respond in this story? Well, you'd hope or expect them to receive it. This is amazing. But what did they do? They used their freedom to kill him, which just confirms they're a slave to sin. And so the truth sets free, but now we see the truth also divides. And that's what now Jesus points out. You see, with God it is black and white. You're either for me or against me. You're either, either for me, which means you're for my son, or you're against me. Well, what this means is that 
What Jesus is making clear here, it's never enough to just believe in God, a generic God up in the sky. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to love Jesus. You can't love God without loving Jesus. And so the truth divides the whole world into two. Those who love the Son, which means they love the Father, or those who don't. The truth divides. Look at verse 42. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. And so Jesus is making a very blunt point. It, it, it divides the world in two. If you love God, you would love me. If you don't, you're not one of us. And that's what Jesus revealed about God. Now, when we hear this, it is so shocking. But it gets far more shocking. Jesus goes on to say, If God is not your father, if you're not part of this family, then which family are you part of? You're not just living for yourself anymore. He says these words now, which I find so shocking. He says, You're part of the family of the devil. I mean, it's so hard to hear. But is it true or not? Not a matter of perspective. Look at verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see what Jesus is saying? Why is it that people lie? Their father is the devil. Why is it that people murder? Like father, like son. Their father is the devil. It is so shocking, so offensive. But is it true or not? Now hearing this, remember these were religious people. They were the religious elite. They came to Jerusalem at their own cost to offer sacrifices to be with God. But now Jesus turns to them and says, you're not only not free, your father is the devil. I mean, it's a bit like if, if someone's been coming along to church for generations, for, I mean, for, for decades, all their life, thinking that they are religious, doing all the right things God commands and asks for, but then for Jesus to turn up and say, you're not free. You think you are. You, you think all those religious duties make you free? Not at all. In fact, your father is the devil. You're not part of the family of God. It is offensive and shocking to hear. But is it true or not? Now it was Martin Luther, one of the reformers. He tried to capture what human life and living and human will is like. He describes it as, as people we are made to serve and we'll always be serving someone. We'll always have a master. And he describes a human will like a horse. And the choices the horse makes depends on who the rider is. And there can only be two riders, either God or the devil, riding on the horse. And so Jesus is here saying, you are either controlled by God or you are controlled by the devil. We like to think, I control my own life, I decide my destiny. No, Jesus says, it is the devil or it is God. And if we just look around the world, if we just open our eyes and see the the devil is wreaking havoc upon the world and i just re reflected on this this past week i wonder whether he's sad or happy 
Is the devil today sad or happy, enjoying himself or in despair? Well, I suspect as he watches the news and he sees policies and instructions to children in school that confuses their identity, their gender, that breaks up the family unit, I don't think he's going to be sad there. I suspect he's happy there. Or when governments set laws that allows doctors to do something that is so opposite to what they were trained for, to be able to kill unborn babies. Do you think the devil is sad or happy there? You see, he's the murderer from the beginning. But the truth divides. It divides the world into two. You're of God or you're of the devil. You're either in the family of God or you're in the devil's family. This is hard word to hear. Now I suspect that this may not just be hard but so unpleasant. But again, if it's true, then it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of perspective. It's not dependent upon what I feel or think. If it's true, it remains true. And so what this also means then is that when it comes to God, there's no such thing as a fence sitter. To sit on the fence of, of where I stand before Jesus, it's perhaps the most dangerous place to be, not knowing whether you're in or out. A very dangerous place to be. In fact, Jesus would say, there are no fence sitters. If you're a fence sitter, you're probably on the, you are on the out. And so you're either of God or of the devil. The truth divides. And now finally, why is it that Jesus can claim such absolute truth? Why is it that Jesus can make such absolute promises? Why is it that Jesus can offer to set slaves free from the bondage and curse of sin? Why is it that Jesus is able to bring someone out of darkness and into the family of God? How does he have that power? How is it at all possible? Well, here in our final section, we come to the truth of Christ himself. Now, they're not pleased with him at all after hearing what he said. He's calling them, your father's the devil. They turn it back on him. He's, now they call him demon-possessed. Look at verse 48. They say, you're a Samaritan, which is a bit of a sly for a Jewish man. You're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he didn't back down. He continues to drive the point. If this is true, it's true. Not only is he able to set sinners free, he can keep people from dying. I mean, who in their right mind would ever make such a claim? Verse 51, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. I mean, that's an extraordinary claim. Who can ever claim such a thing? Believe in what I say. And you will not die. Now they understood how extraordinary that claim was. And so they're a bit confused. How is this at all possible? You're just a mere man. The prophets, they died in the past. Do you think you're greater than them? Abraham, our father, he died. Do you think you're greater than him? But Jesus, he just ratchets it up. Look at verse 56 now. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Now they're thinking, Jesus, you've just gone overboard. You're not even 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham? How is that at all possible? You see, they just cannot make sense. This is a man standing before them with flesh and blood and bones claiming to be greater than Abraham. You haven't even seen Abraham and you're not even 50 years old. Now there's this um, tradition in the Netherlands that I heard of from a friend. When you turn 50 years old, it's, it's a big birthday and they would congratulate you for seeing Abraham. So any of our Dutch friends here? Yes, that's true. And if you're a female, if you turn 50, they congratulate you by saying you've seen Sarah. Well, that tradition comes from this passage anyway. Well, here, they couldn't make sense of Jesus. This guy is under 50 years old, and yet he's claiming that he's seen Abraham. They didn't realize that standing before them is God himself, the Son of God. And so Jesus responds now with words that only God can say. Verse 58. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. That's how God revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush. It is I am. I am who I am. I am has sent you to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to set my people free. It is the personal name of God. And Jesus is saying, I am before Abraham. He said, beyond their wildest dreams and expectations, Standing before them, a man was the God they were worshipping, the God they were meant to be worshipping. And what did they do? They tried to kill him. They picked up stones and tried to kill him. It just shows, it confirms, they're a slave to sin. But the truth of Christ is that he is the divine God. So what's the truth? Well, you see, according to... To Jesus, there is truth. There is absolute truth. And it's not a matter of opinion or perspective. And the truth is this. We are either in one family beaten down by a cruel master, a slave to sin, cursed by death, facing hell, or we belong to the family of God, loved by a father, not a master, freed from sin, to live for God, freed for God. And so I wonder whether you have thought about where you in fact stand. Remember there's no fence sitters here. Now I wonder how many of you feel like, I'm not too sure, but I feel like I'm imprisoned in my own heart. I might enjoy the freedoms of this land, but I feel imprisoned in my own heart. Always feeling inadequate and insecure. Always feelings of failure or even fearing death. I feel weighed down by my past, my shame, my guilt. I feel imprisoned by this darkness of bitterness in my heart that eats and gnaws away. I'm addicted to something I shouldn't be. Well, the freedom that Jesus offers here is that you don't have to be. There is true freedom from all that bondage. To belong to God, to be a child of God Most High, where my identity, my security is in Christ. And if that is so, I do not need the approval of this world. I do not need the approval of any single soul because I have the love of God already. 
My future is certain, no fear at all, in life or death. And no longer does sin have that hold and grip on me that it used to have. Because the shackles, the chains have been broken. How do you get from one life, one family, to the other? Well, Jesus tells us. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I know many of us here are already Christians. We know and enjoy that. But we need to ask, what are we doing then if we are Christians? If we do understand that we do have this freedom, what am I doing with my freedom? For those of you who don't, get into the family of God first. Follow the teachings of Jesus. Trust in him as saviour. Get into the family first. But for us who are already in the family, what are we doing with our freedom? Now this past week I've been thinking and reflecting on how, how this passage is meant to challenge us. And this passage challenges me just as much as it would you, I hope. And so I'll say a few things, uh, ask a few questions, and if it applies, apply it. If it doesn't, remember it. But as I say this, I'm also reflecting on how this passage has, has challenged my life. And so, how are you using your freedom? Well, if you call yourself a Christian, why is it that there are Christians who can't find it in their heart to be humble, to repent, to forgive, to show mercy just as you've been shown mercy, to show love and grace just as you've been shown love and grace? Why is it that Christians who call themselves Christians cannot do that? Why is it that Christians would live like they're still enslaved to sin? It can't be. It can't be. Or why is it that if you call yourself a Christian, you have freedom in Christ, the freedom that Christ has granted you to live for him, then when things in life get busy, there are pressures from all over. The first thing that often drops are the things of God. Commitment to Christ drops. Commitment to his family drops. Even church attendance drops when things get busy. Complacent with our faith. Sitting on your laurels, lukewarm in your love for Christ. Indifferent to the plight of the lost. If we call ourselves a Christian, why do we live like we, we don't belong to the family of God? With the Father who loves and cares for us, of course I want to live differently. Or why is it that if you call yourself a Christian, that you continue to allow yourself to be weighed down by past guilt and shame and sin and carry the burdens like you're still unforgiven? Why do you live like the death of Jesus was not enough, like you are not already free? Or why is it that if you call yourself a Christian, that we might even live with such little faith, unwilling to live so boldly and radically and fearlessly for God with all our efforts, with all our resources, with full conviction. But yet we still focus on just our little world. So fearful 
so concerned that I might lose my stuff, my comfort, my things. Why do you live like you are not free, like God is not your father and Christ is not your brother? You see, how will we as Christians use our freedom that Christ has won for us? Now, I always find a great encouragement just to reflect on the lives here and see how many of you are using your freedom so boldless, boldly and fearlessly. And I get encouragement from the stories I hear of men and women who live out their faith, knowing the freedom they have in Christ. Now, let me share with you a story of one particular man who, who lived like nothing mattered apart from Christ. He knew of his freedom in Christ, what Christ has done for him, and his focus in life is so focused on Christ. This is the story of Eric Little. You may have heard of his story from the movie Chariots of Fire. He understood how Christ has set him free, the freedom from sin and freed for God. Now we may remember him or hear of him as the Flying Scotsman. Now, if you know of his story, it's a marvellous, extraordinary story. He shocked the world when he refused to run in the 100-metre race at the Olympics because the qualifying heat was on the Sabbath. And so he was criticised for being and not showing sportsmanship and no patriotism. But yet he understood his freedom in Christ. He knew the family he belonged to. He knows of the God he served. And so he didn't care for what the world thought. He wasn't concerned for the approval of others. He stood on his convictions, but yet even though he didn't run in that race, he ran in another one, the 400 metres at the 1924 Olympics, and he won that one. But what was far more fascinating was, was what happened to him after the Olympics. You see, he had a promising career in athletics as a rugby player as well, but he gave it all up. It seems so strange. Gave up that prospect to go back to the place of his birth in China to be a missionary. I mean, you just think about that. It just sounds strange. If you have freedom to progress and achieve and succeed, wouldn't you take that? But yet he went to China to live a different life, to live the life for God. And how did he use that freedom? Well, he went back to China, taught as a missionary teacher, in a place called Tianjin Anglo-Chinese College. But then when the war broke up and broke out and the Japanese invaded, he got his family out, his wife, his pregnant wife and two daughters back to Canada. He himself refused to leave China, this place he loved, the people he loved. And so he was placed in a camp, interned and placed in a camp. Now you think about his life, he's now in prison. There's no freedom there. What freedom can he experience? It seems so hopeless. But yet because he understood the gospel, he held to the teachings of Christ. He was indeed free. And so even in prison, even in the camp, he used his freedom with boldness. He was fearless. He cared for the welfare of the inmates. He was described by others there as Jesus with running shoes. He cared for the children taught them hymns and there are many stories from the children of that camp who survived and lived on and spoke so well of him. He cared for the outcasts in the camp, a prostitute nursed them back to health. 
And one day, he had the opportunity to be free. Uh, history has it that Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister at that time, brokered a deal to have him released in exchange for someone else. The opportunity to be free, to have freedom, to go back. But what did he do? Instead, he arranged for a pregnant woman to, from that camp to take his place instead. Now, it seems so strange. Why would you do that? You would only do that if you know of your freedom in Christ. You're freed from sin. You're freed for God. And shortly after that, he died before the end of the war at just 43 years of age, went into a coma and never came back. So when you look at a life of a man like that, that's a man who understands, understood a passage like this. What is the truth? The truth is that there are two families. One, you're enslaved. One, you have freedom. One, you have a master who will crush you. One, you have a father who loves you. He knew he belonged to this one. He knew he had freedom, even though he was inside prison. He had freedom in Christ, to live for Christ, to follow him. And so he did so boldly and fearlessly. And so for us as Christians and as a church, if we are Christians, what do we do with our freedom? Well, let it be the resolve of our church, because Christ has set me free, I will live for him with all my energy. I'll even expend my life for him, even if it means my end. I mean, that's true freedom. Let's pray.